Beloved, 2023 was a wonderful year for Santan Bible Church. Uh, back in September, we had the first of what might be, it's not a guarantee, what might be a biannual creation conference and a river trip. Uh, back in March, we had what uh, might be the first of a biannual missions conference. And uh, these are good. It's good to be reminded of God's glory in his creation. It's good to be reminded that Christianity is a missionary faith inherently. And the best reminder, the best bedrock for these aren't special conferences as much and as wonderful of a blessing those are. It's as we go verse by verse, passage by passage through the Bible that again, we are reminded that Christianity is a missionary faith, our witness, our testimony. And we testify of this faith with our lips. And we testify of this faith with our lives. And in our text this morning, we have two witnesses, uh, the witness of our love and the witness of our work. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 4. In the first three verses, actually the first two verses, in the beginning of the third verse is a general call from God that describes the will of God for you and the will of God for me, namely your sanctification, my sanctification. We are all works under construction on this side of eternity. And there are many currents, beloved, that we have to swim against in seeking to please God. We read in verse 2 that that is our aim in life, to please God. And we swim upstream against the tide of the world in this endeavor. But by God's grace and mercy, we are not alone. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we are now not what we once were. By God's grace, we've been given new life so that we may live a new lifestyle. Beloved, we must all adorn the gospel with our lives as well as proclaim it with our lips. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3. Then I'm going to skip over the part that we covered last week, the second part of verse 3 to verse 8, and I'll pick it up in verse 9. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, so that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now jump to verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, the outline here in these four verses is our witness in love and our witness in work. And beloved, biblical Christianity has always been eminently practical. It affects our daily life. It's a walking faith. It's a working faith. It's a living faith. 
And biblical Christianity is the crossroads where doctrine affects duty and where creed impacts conduct, where what we profess with our lips impacts and affects and drives and guides what we do with our lives. So let's look at the first two verses here, which is namely our witness of love. And love, of course, is the crowning jewel of Christianity. Love God and love one another are the first and the second greatest commandment in a word. And even as we had read back in chapter 3, verse 12, we are to love not just the brothers, but to love all men. It extends beyond even the confines of these walls and even the confines of others, brothers and sisters around the world. Love is the fulcrum upon which the sexual purity that Paul wrote about about in verses 3 through 8 and a biblical work ethic that he speaks of in verses 11 and 12, function and move. Love is the fulcrum upon which these function, move, and pivot. And we can put it this way as well. The person who loves his brother won't defraud them with sexual immorality, as he talks about back in verse 6. And the person who loves his brother and sister won't drain them by being a lazy sluggard, as he warns against in verses 11 and 12. And what we see here first in this opening, verse 9, is we see a commendation of love, a commendation from the apostle Paul on these young believers that are model believers as a model church. Uh, Paul had exhorted the Thessalonians, and God exhorts us to have a love for all men, as I indicated back in chapter 3, verse 12. But that does not mean that there's not a special love for brothers and sisters in Christ. That means there is a special, particular love that God wants us to have for the family of God, for all of the family of God, and certainly, primarily, the local church family of God. A special love in the family of God and a special love for the family of God. A special love that God has for his people and a special love that God works through his people. A look at verse 9. He begins our passage here. Now as to the love of the brethren. Now as to the Philadelphia of the brethren. That's the Greek word. That's the city. And I won't make uh, cerebral comments about the East Coast or the city of brotherly love on the East Coast in Pennsylvania simply say that as to the Philadelphia of all the brethren. And it's interesting, this Greek word Philadelphia in all of the extra biblical literature prior to Paul writing this, and in fact, even in the usage of the Greek word Philadelphia in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all of the references for this love refer to blood brothers and sisters. It has been transformed here by the Apostle Paul, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Philadelphia is used exclusively for the love of brothers and sisters in the family of God. And praise God if there are biological brothers and sisters in the family of God. But the emphasis of priority here is the family of faith, not the family of blood. And this elevates and emphasizes what we should know already, that the unifying factor, the unifying element that we have here is not that we come from the same background. 
It's not that we have the same interests and hobbies. It's not economical, social, or cultural. Our unifying factor is that we come from the same place and we are saved by the same grace. The same place meaning rebels, sinners, transgressors, men and women that are deserving nothing but the judgment of God, yet have been saved and been made new by his grace. That is what we have. So it may well be true that blood is thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. But he continues, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. The apostle Paul taught them when he was with them. They listened. They heard in the sense of they heeded and they obeyed. So he commends them. Calvin, in commenting on this, he said, Love was engraved on their hearts, so there was no need of letters written on paper. This is part of Paul's commendation. You have no need for me to write further on this because I've instructed you when I was with you before and praise God as we've seen all the way up to this point in the letter, the blessing and joy that Paul gets and receives when he hears the report from Timothy. And it's interesting, Paul will write in uh, the next section, the next topic, the same kind of dimension, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So we'll pause here for a moment to remember what we are dealing with here in the section. In verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3 of chapter 4, that's the general call to sanctification of God's will in your life. And then the end of verse 3 through verse 8, he deals with the subject of sex. In verses 9 through 12, he deals with the subject of work. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11, he deals with the topic of death. So sex, work, and death. That is the outline that we have at the broad level for this. And so that is the commendation that Paul gives them by virtue of God's good work in their life. But then as we continue on, we come to the foundation of love. There's a commendation of love, but Paul reminds them, God reminds you and me that the foundation of love that they enjoyed, the foundation of love that's manifest in our lives is, namely, we love because God first loved us. We understand that. At the end of verse 9, he says, For, this is the reason why, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So Paul taught them. But beyond that, as important and as much of a blessing it is to have the faithful teaching and preaching and ministry and encouragement and as necessary it is to have all of that. The foundational element that every Christian has is the indwelling Holy Spirit, where we are taught by God himself. For you yourselves are literally God-taught. Theodidaktos. This is a word that, that it does not appear anywhere else in any of the Bible or in any other extent literature except some Christian fathers, a few places that after Paul wrote and used this to cite this. So it seems like Paul coined this term. We are, beloved, God taught. And notice also that here at the end of verse 9, Paul uses the present tense. He doesn't say you were taught by God. He says you literally are being taught by God. We are being born along by God in our pursuit of holiness, in our process of sanctification in our being transformed from glory to glory we are being taught by God and this is 
one of the fulfillments, a partial fulfillment of the great promise that God gave to the nation of Israel in the new covenant promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, that we would all know him, all of us, from the least to the greatest, that we all will be taught by God. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, there God said through the prophet, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And that is God's promise for the nation of Israel, which still will come when the nation of Israel as a whole turns and repents and mourns for Christ as for an only son. But we are beneficiaries of this new covenant promise in this inaugural already part of this promise fulfillment that God has given. We are being taught by God what does the text say to love one another, to agapao one another, agape love. So right here in verse 9, we have both the Philadelphia love and the agape love, both the others-oriented love and the self-sacrificing love, the Jesus-like love. And beloved, this kind of brotherly love, this kind of sisterly love that God is commending to you and me, God is exhorting you and me towards, it demands mutual commitment and loyalty. It requires instruction, cultivation, and practical direction. And so while Paul had taught them before, and while there was, in a sense, no need for him to write any more words, God graciously gives through Paul to the Thessalonian believers and stamped in time forever for all of his children, uh, to us as well directly, this practical direction. So we move from the commendation of the love of the Thessalonians to the foundation of love, which rests on God, to their demonstration of this love that has been shed abroad in their hearts. And we can state it this way, the extent to which we know and love God will be demonstrated by, will be manifest by the extent to which we know and love his church, one another. Look at verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So here, the love, their love was not limited to one person, one church, even one city. There was a practical, demonstrable love for all the brothers and sisters in their province, in the Roman province of Macedonia. So that would include their brothers and sisters in Philippi, their brothers and sisters in Berea, and even other cities as well. And by way of reminder, Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And so, not only as we are being blessed as we go through this letter that Paul wrote, that God inspired and superintended Paul to write to this model church, this example church, not only did their faith reverberate through all of Macedonia and Achaia, and even beyond as we read back in chapter 1, verse 8, remember the Apostle wrote there, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So not only did their faith reverberate, so also their love reverberated through all of Macedonia is what God brings out here. And 
just a little more words on this love, this kind of biblical love, this kind of Philadelphia love, this kind of agape love. It's not a quiver in the gut that's devoid of practical expression. This kind of Jesus-like love has eyes and ears and hands and feet. And beloved, dear friend, if we say we believe this, then we must live this. Our faith, your faith, walks the street. Your faith touches the earth. Your faith impacts people, especially in your local church. You see, Christianity that doesn't change the way we live is not the real thing. A loveless Christian is a spiritless Christian. Stated positively, beloved, when we obey God's central command to love, we will obey his other commandments. That's why Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room discourse, John 15, uh, 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's both characteristic and causative. If we love, if we truly love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we will love our brother and sister as we already love ourselves and even beyond. So there's a commendation, foundation, a demonstration. Finally, there is a call, there's an urging towards an acceleration, an expansion, if you will, of love. And what Paul does here is like a coach motivating his team, a team that is on a winning streak. Paul, Pastor Paul, encourages, exhorts, and urges. He says, but, at the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. This exhortation here points both backwards and forwards. He's saying excel still more in the love that I just talked about. That's the general love, the general love for brothers and sisters he's talking about with a particular application to work. Excel still more in both love and work. We've seen this excel still more, which as I think Tim has said in some newcomers meetings prior to us getting into this letter or some membership meetings, that's one of my kind of stock favorite phrases is, hey, let's excel still more. Now I get to preach through all of these. But we've seen it in chapter three, verse 12. We saw it in chapter four, verse one. This is the M&M sanctification more and more. And another way to understand this is your justification where God pronounced you as a guilty sinner, pronounced me as a guilty sinner to be pardoned. Our justification is once for all, but our sanctification is more and more, excel still more until it is realized when we enter into the presence of our Lord and Savior. So we need to, before we move completely from love to work, we need to increase our love and we need to improve our love, both the quantity and the quality. And our vertical relationship with God won't be what it should be when our horizontal relationship with one another isn't what it should be. And mark this, beloved, our love for all the brethren must begin with the local church. We can't say we love all the brothers and sisters around the world if we don't love effectively, practically, not perfectly, of course, on the side of eternity. But we can't say we love all the brothers and sisters around the world if we don't love the brothers and sisters that are sitting next to us. And I appreciate you patience because you love an unlovable person like me. Anyway, that's the first witness. The second witness, as we go to the last two verses, 11 and 12, is our witness of work. 
This is where Paul moves from the general love for the brethren to a particular application, a particular expression of this brotherly love in the arena of work. And he tells us what it looks like, and he tells us what it leads to. And what this brotherly love looks like, he brings out three virtues, three virtues, and it's based on the grammar, three virtues in order to prevent three vices. You see, when we read 1 Thessalonians, it is generally preventative. It is graciously preventative. 2 Thessalonians, when we get there after this book, is distinctly corrective because the seed of every sin is in every heart. And so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives the gentle glove of prevention. But in 2 Thessalonians, just a few months later, he will give the hard rod of correction. And the three virtues that he brings out here in verse 11, he basically says, be calm, be unobtrusive, and be hardworking. And these are to prevent, to guard against the three vices of being restless, being a busybody, and being lazy. First, he says, be calm, be calm. And what he does here is this moral expression of brotherly love in the arena of work is so that we understand even what's coming. This is all tied together. Remember, he gives the general call to sanctification in the first three verses, and then he focuses on these three different areas of sex, work, and death. So we need to be mindful of what's coming and what Paul writes in the rest of this letter, and especially what he'll write in the second letter. And basically, this is given, these exhortations here are given in the foreground of the doctrinal instruction centered on the second coming. The moral expression of brotherly love here in verses 11 and 12 is given in the foreground of the doctrinal instruction of the end times that will occupy chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11, and then most of the second letter. And apparently what is beginning to threaten the Thessalonian believers is the beginning buds of a, what I'm calling a parousia hysteria. Parousia, that's the Greek word for coming, uh, for the second coming that we see in Thessalonians. And apparently there is some hysteria that was beginning to grow in this body. There was an out-of-whack fervency around the anticipation of the second coming. To be sure, we cry out, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. There is a great hope and a great anticipation, but it had apparently led some Thessalonians to, in a radically misguided fashion, even quit their jobs because they just, perhaps they just wanted to focus on the ministry and so people will support me. Or he's going to come soon, so what's the, what's the bother? And some were even grotesquely distorting this great hope when we read the more stronger language in 2 Thessalonians. But here, look at verse 11. We urge you, brethren, to make it your ambition, to strive earnestly, literally to strive from a love of honor, to win the respect of is kind of what's behind this one word translated, make it your ambition. He continues, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And I love it. One commentator called this a vigorous paradox. Another called it a splendid oxymoron. Uh, literally what he's saying here is seek restlessly to be still. One commentator said, make it your ambition to have no ambition. That's where you get the paradox, the oxymoron that he's talking about here. Now, 
What he's describing here, this quiet life does not mean noiselessness. He's describing a quality of life, a calm and content disposition. He, this means we don't have a restless preoccupation with the trivial and the distracting. And it's possible that the people in the congregation, even in this more gentle glove of prevention approach that he has here in 1 Thessalonians, he does kick it up a little bit. For example, in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. The unruly, these are the disorderly, the undisciplined, the idle, the lazy, a sluggard. This word unruly would describe a soldier who wouldn't obey orders. It would describe a slacker who evades responsibility. And so all of this together, this kind of calm demeanor to which God exhorts all of us toward, it means that we're not given over to hysteria and panic. This is an even-keeledness. We can say we get excited about being quiet. Or we could say we get agitated about not being agitated. And beloved, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. He is also our example. And Jesus was never in a state of panic and hysteria. And therefore, his children, we should aspire to never be in a state of hysteria or panic. And the result is we won't be disruptive to others, is what Paul's concern here is. So he says, be calm. The second virtue, he says, be unobtrusive. You see, a meddling spirit is the ugly twin brother of restlessness. That's why the verse continues, the middle of verse 11, and attend to your own business. This is beautifully idiomatic in both the Greek and the Hebrew. Mind your own business is what he is saying here. This is against the same kind of sin that Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 4, 15, when he talked about a troublesome meddler. Uh, this troublesome meddler, or this one that is not attending to their own business is one who interferes in the affairs of others. It's one who intrudes in things that don't concern him. He has a busybody. In fact, that's an English word that is used in 2 Thessalonians, a second letter, 2 Thessalonians 3.11. Paul there says, we hear among you are, there are some among you leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. This one is an eavesdropper, a troublemaker, a rat, a gossip, a scandal monger. And my favorite, this is actually a word in Webster's, a budinsky. I didn't know that was the word. It's actually in Webster, so there you go. Spurgeon said, five words cost Zacharias 40 weeks silence. Many are sorry they spoke, but few ever mourned that they held their tongue. And Paul also in the second letter, 2 Thessalonians 3.12, such persons we commend and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You see, beloved, in the family of God, we must understand that the conduct of one affects the well-being of the many. That's why Paul is concerned. This is why Paul writes this. And beloved, Love is expressed when we learn to mind our own business. Love is manifest in quietness, a lack of nosiness and busybodiness. And we move to the third virtue in hard-working labor. He says, be calm, be unobtrusive, and be hard-working. 
And understand this, the sin that Paul is talking about here is not those who want work but genuinely can't find it. The sin here is they don't want to work. The issue is not a lack of resources. The issue is a lack of work ethic. That's why, look at the end of verse 11. He continues, and work with your hands just as we commanded you. And when he says, just as we commanded you, it's the same root word that we got back in verse 2. Back there he said around sanctification, you know what commandments we gave you. And here he says, verse 11, work with your hands just as we commanded you. And this is the same kind of language that Paul will 10 years plus uh, use when he writes to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 28, he says, let him who steal excuse me, let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good. You see, stealing is selfish laziness. Before a man becomes a thief, he is first a sluggard. That's why Solomon wrote, for example, and there's, there's in some blessing ways, there's beautifully nothing new under the sun, and in some sinful ways, there's tragically nothing new under the sun. Solomon wrote, Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the doctor said, ultimately the trouble with the thief is he dislikes work. He's the sort of man who really despises honest work and labor. And so, under this parousia hysteria, under this misplaced fervency around the great hope of Christ's second coming, some of the Thessalonian believers were beginning to presume upon the love and generosity of the others. Historically, among the monks and monasteries, there was an order called the Mendicant Friars, and the Mendicant Friars were bound by vows of absolute poverty and an ascetic way of life and they depended upon the generosity the charity of others and in fact it was this way of life that gave them their name mendicant mendicant comes from the latin word mendicare which means to beg and beloved first thessalonians 4 11 drives a stake in the heart of not just the monastic lifestyle but of begging friars on the positive side we can think of jesus jesus worked hard as a carpenter with the greatest work ethic ever, with the absolute perfect work ethic. The apostle Paul worked day and night making tents so as to not be a burden on the church. Solomon also will write Proverbs 28 verse 19, he who works his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. Or for a moment, and of course we'll get there when we get into 2 Thessalonians, but turn over to 2 Thessalonians. Let me read verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. So, you will, so we will understand what's coming and what will transpire even after Paul wrote this first letter. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. Even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. What this means, this has many meanings. This means, among other things, mark this, that our, your, my 24-7 
devotion to Christ does not become dereliction of our nine to five duty to our employers and even of our 24 seven duty to our family and church. This means back here, certainly in second Thessalonians, but exactly what he's talking about at the end of verse 11, first Thessalonians four, it means do your own job, earn your own bread, push your own wheelbarrow, pay your own bills. Proverbs 30, verse 15, the leech has two daughters, give, give. What he's saying, what the apostle Paul's saying is, don't be a leech and live off the largesse of others. Now, as I said before, this is not talking about people that aren't able to find work. This is not talking about people that are find themselves in desperate measures outside of their control. And in fact, at the very end of verse 12, we'll point back towards the generosity. But this is for the sin of laziness, the great sin of laziness. And even there is a great challenge for those of us who pay our own bills is to discern when does generosity that we are commanded, we are blessed to have and to show one another, when does generosity become enablement? And proverbially speaking, we need the, the wisdom of Solomon to sort through that. And by the way, that's why it's beautiful to have a plurality of leaderships even within a church. So in this context, there are two camps within the body in this context, those who are a blessing and those who are a burden. And again, to qualify, it's not saying that anyone that ever gets anything from the church or from another brother is a burden in a bad way. But if there is a sinful laziness, a heart of a sluggard behind that, then that is an inappropriate burden. So that's what this brotherly love looks like in this practical expression. Finally, what does this brotherly love lead to? And what we have in verse 12 is our ministry to outsiders and our ministry to insiders. A clear testimony to those outside the church and personal responsibility within the church. And this circles back to where we began. Christianity is a missionary faith. The world is watching and wondering. The world is listening and learning. They are seated in the classroom of your life. They're seated in the classroom of my life. And so the question is, what are they learning? Look at verse 12. So that, purpose statement, hina, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders. Literally, so that you may walk properly toward outsiders. The walk that we saw even opening up back in verse one of this chapter, the intent of us to increase our walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Master, as our Rabbi. And even this behaving properly towards outsiders, there's also an element with this goes back to verse 11 where he says, make it your ambition, make it your ambition, win the respect of. In fact, even a little more than a decade after Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he will also write to the church in Colossae. And in Colossians 4, verse 5, he says, conduct yourselves, literally walk, you yourselves walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. 
In the Colossians passage, that is more of the gospel being expressed with our lips. But here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 12, it's adorned with our lives. The gospel is adorned with our lives. And so what all of us always have to do is what kind of garments are we draping around the gospel with our behavior? And we can say this way, spanning across what we've covered so far in chapter 4, lust does not adorn the gospel. Laziness does not adorn the gospel. If we refuse to carry, or excuse me, if we refuse to earn our own living when we are perfectly capable of doing so, then we earn the deserved contempt of the world, and we discredit the faith and bring dishonor to the name of Christ. The world is watching. Sloppy work does not adorn the gospel. Cutting corners does not adorn the gospel. Does our daily life win the respect? Does our daily life, does your daily life, does my daily life earn the respect of our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends? That is what Paul is talking about here. That's what God, that's what God is charging, exhorting, and encouraging you and me towards. Be dependable, be hardworking, be honest. Beloved, God has placed us in a mission field right where we are. Are we doing the work of evangelists? by proclaiming with our lips and living with our lives. Proverbs 11, verse 30, Solomon wrote, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. I didn't know Solomon was a Baptist. I always think win soul, soul winning, that's a Baptist thing. Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heavens, watch this, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Beloved, you and I, we live in a sin-stained, corrupt world, and in the same way, we can think of a lighthouse. The lighthouse doesn't change the rocky dangerous shore upon which it resides, but the lighthouse reveals the dangers. The lighthouse encourages the faint-hearted mariner and guides his ship into safe harbor. And so in the same way, beloved, you and I can't change, and we, it's misguided to try to change, that we should be responsible citizens, vote, etc., etc. But living righteously, virtuously, we don't expect that to change the dangerous, rocky, perilous world. But you and I are used by God to reveal the dangers. We are used by God to encourage the faint-hearted and guide men and women through the dark waters of the secular word, world into the safe harbors of the peace of Christ. That's why Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the same kind of winsome conduct that Jesus preached on in the Sermon on the Mount that Paul brings out here. This is the magnetic force of spirit-empowered love that is extant and manifest, and may it be demonstrable inside you and me. So there is a clear testimony to outsiders, and then we wrap up, there is personal responsibility towards insiders. And he finishes, and not be in any need. And not be in any need. The point here in context is not the sufficiency of our supply. The point here is that we ought not be a drain on our brothers and sisters. This is being biblically financially independent. And 
biblical financial independence does not mean, in case you missed it, does not mean we don't have to work. What that means is we pay our own bills, or at least we strive towards paying our own bills. And it also means, kind of a separate topic, I'll go off on this a bit, come back back in, it also means that we are content with food, shelter, and clothing. And that could be a six-part series of living a victorious life in the incredibly prosperous, greed-gluttonous society in which we live. It means we're content with food, shelter, and clothing. Ephesians 4, 28, remember, after Paul gave the command, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him work with his own hands for what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. So here's where we finish off with the generosity that we are all blessed to be charged by God to show towards one another. We work hard in order to give, not in order to get. Same dynamic that Christ gave as Luke captured in Luke 3:11. Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. So the point of being hardworking is not to get more of what we need less of. The point is to work hard, to have more to give away. And beloved, when our heart is emancipated from idols, when our heart is unshackled, when the fetters are removed and it's broken, it's amazing what will fall out of our hands because of what has fallen out of our heart. Proverbs 26, verses 13 through 18. You can turn there if you wish, or you can... Listen as I read Proverbs 26, verses 13 through 18. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard, does speaking of gluttony as well, he's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Like the one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. You see these kind of tying together here. Like, finally, verse 18, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and deaths. Beloved, that is the great warning. So how should you and I view work? Work is ordained by God. Work was there in Genesis 1 and 2. Work is not a result of the curse. Work was there prior to the curse. After the curse, pain and thorns and thistles. A woman's childbearing, the pain will increase. So there is consequence afterwards, but work was good. It is the good gift from a gracious God just like sexual intimacy that we saw last time, both the sex and the work that Paul deals with here were both creation ordinances in Genesis 1 and 2. And then the rest of the other 1,187 chapters in the Bible deal with the third topic that Paul will deal with next, namely death. Work is a blessing to be embraced, not a curse to be avoided. It's not a hindrance to ministry. It's ministry itself. Our work is our mission field. And beloved, in conclusion, and even kind of as a segue to what will come to us next week and some weeks after that, in the great hope of Jesus' second coming, we are living between two comings. And God teaches us in Scripture how to live, how to think, how to be ready, how to act. We are to be watchful, faithful, and diligent. In 
Matthew 25, verses 1 through 6, you may be familiar with the parable that Jesus told in the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the virgins. There are wise virgins and there are foolish virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. You see, the wise virgins in this parable, they understand, and it goes on from there, the foolish virgins don't have their lamps lit. So they ask the wise virgins, Hey, give us some of your oil. And the wise virgins said, no, we can't do that, then we wouldn't have some. The wise virgins, as the parable continues, understand you can't borrow power, you can't borrow faith, you can't borrow the Holy Spirit, is how we would even apply this now. The foolish virgins, they have religion, they have form, but they have no care for what's inside. They're not taking their job to provide light seriously. They have lamps with no oil, candles with no wicks, torches with no flame. Light bulbs with no electricity. They have an outward form of religion with no internal power. So, all that to say, Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Are we ready? And are we living in such a way that truly demonstrate that we believe what he says about how we are to live, what he says about his coming? Do we carry the, merely carry the lamp of profession, keeping it shiny on the outside, but in reality there's no oil? Beloved, that is the challenge. Dear friend, that is the challenge for each and every person. Every man and woman will stand before the Lord. And one will either die in their sin and suffer in hell forever and ever for their sin. Or one will have all of their sin. Even their sins, their shortcoming, their faults, their failures after conversion washed away, paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross and ushered joyfully into the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever in heaven where sin has no power and death has no victory. That is the great promise of the gospel and may we as a local church demonstrate that in how we love one another and how we work hard in an appropriate fashion, guided, wise stewardship fashion in our employment in our marketplace ministry, and in our church ministry. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the timeless truth in these ancient words. Lord, even as we said last week, this was written some 2,000 years ago, but Lord, this could have been written this morning. This could have been written directly to me, to any of us here. Lord, be glorified still more in what we individually do, what we corporately do at Santan Bible Church. And for anyone here this morning or listening now or later, watching now or later, that is not trusting in you alone by faith alone, Lord, may they turn from their sin. Let them come to you and ask for forgiveness. Trust in you and you alone by faith alone that you would receive them to you. Give them the gift of salvation and that the Holy Spirit would indwell them and mobilize them and enable them to do these things, even as we seek and strive to do and do do. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing.
Amen.